it's August, which means summer in Brussels has officially arrived. That means out-of-office replies, few meetings on the calendar. Is it possible for any EU business to get done over the coming weeks? Today, our team takes us inside the Brussels machinery to explain how, if any, work gets done here in this city over the summer. Also, as folks head off to their summer destination of choice, we'll discuss the tension between Europe's need for tourism cash and the glaring ramifications of climate change. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent, and I'm delighted to be joined by Nick Finnecourt, Politico's Editor-at-Large, and EU Politics Reporter Gregorio Sorgi. Nick, let's start with you. I mean, it is a very quiet Brussels we're coming to you from this week. I've been walking around the streets. I, in fact, bumped into you on the tram on Saturday, a very empty tram, because this city really does empty out uh, once August arrives. Yeah, and I think one of the best indicators is the ASAP on Rue de la Loire, where just about everybody goes and gets their lunch, is now closed, which means business is pretty much done for the EU quarter. Um, It's very, very tough. You know, you send out one email, get five out of offices. You're getting those long seven, eight-week European holidays, you know, into the second second half of September, uh, we, we've we reached that point. Mm. Not us, of course, hardworking journalists uh, still coming to you, <laughs> though, as you'll hear later in the podcast, this is our last episode uh, for the summer. Gregorio, you've been writing, though, in more detail about how this actually impacts decision-making in the EU and how the EU, and particularly the European Commission, functions uh, during the summer. What have you learned Well, yeah, as you were saying, most Eurocrats are leaving for a long summer break. But as in many companies and organizations, also the European Commission has a summer roster. And this means in practice that there will be one commissioner who will be on duty in the commission's headquarters in the Berlamont for one week in August. And the rota for this summer is the agri-chief Wojciechowski, he was on duty last week. This week, it will be down to the Environment Commissioner, Sinkevicius. Next week, it will be the Health Commissioner, Kiriakides. And the final one will be the Maltese Equality Commissioner, Elena Dalli. And then at the beginning of September, all the commissioners will be coming back from the holidays and the first College of Commissioners meeting will be on the 6th of September. So what will these commissioners on duty, what will they be doing in August? So the commission is saying that they will coordinate decision-making and comms, but in reality, there isn't much to do in Brussels in August because the commission stops its decision-making, so there isn't much to do. And these commissioners will be on hold to respond to any emergencies. Mm. And of course, you know, over the years, we know that news doesn't just stop. I mean, the world does not stop just because Brussels goes on holidays. In previous years, we had the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in 2021. We had the Belarus migration emergency at one point. I can remember sitting through emergency summits on Greece uh, during the Eurozone crisis in the summer. So things do still happen. But as you say, the the regular calendar of meetings, of of college meetings, of those co 
pair meetings we spoke about here on the podcast there, the meetings of ambassadors, they all stop unless something dramatic erupts. Nick, I mean, it's also a challenge, let's face it, for journalists. We're writing here, Playbook will be running throughout the summer. We're writing some stories, but it's also a time for us to look at, at some bigger issues. Both of us were writing last week about von der Leyen's own challenges, keeping you know the show on the road as, as various commissioners head for the door. For example, um, Margaret Vessiger is running for the EIB job. Uh, we've got Franz Timmermans, another senior member of the college, who's now going back to run in the Dutch general election. What kind of things could dominate the news cycle over the next few weeks? Yeah, I mean, the sort of business of legislating is on pause, but there are still a lot of open questions uh, hanging over this commission. One of the immediate questions is, well, now we expect Margaret Vestager and Franz Timmermans, who are two of the most senior, most political profiles in the commission, to move on. So who gets those jobs? That's feeding a lot of chatter in the bubble this week. And beyond that, there's just a lot of talk about, well, what happens next year? What about these top jobs? You know, the narrative for most of this year is that we expect to see von der Leyen serve a second term, but people are also looking for signals from her that she really intends to do that and wants to stay at the commission. And the fact is she hasn't been giving any, which is feeding a lot of discussion around these top jobs. And we're seeing new names coming into contention. People are looking at Thierry Breton, the very outspoken, high-profile French commissioner for industry, but they're also looking outside. They're looking at people like Mark Rutte, the Netherlands prime minister. They're looking at Antonio Costa in Portugal, who's also a contender. So we're looking at the you know commission, council, European External Action Service. All of these are big pieces on the political chessboard that are starting to sort of move around. And that's what, you know, what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm looking to talk about this. <laughs> exactly. And and a lot of speculation now about von der Leyen's, as you said, her next move, that perhaps she could want the uh, NATO Secretary General job, particularly given that Jens Stoltenberg's term has been extended by a year. Some people are reading a lot into the timing of that. But of course, that's all ahead of us next summer when we have the European elections and then that jockeying for positions uh, really sets in. The other issue, of course, is the legislative agenda for the year. Maybe we can just have a bit of a sneak preview. We'll be coming back to that, of course, when we're back in September. But what is to come for the EU? We've only got, you know, we're in the, really in the final stretch of the current mandate. What kind of topics are you looking out for when we're back in the rentrée in September? Yeah, I'll keep it simple. I think one of the big policy questions facing the EU is, industrial policy, and in particular, state aid. So since the beginning of COVID, going into Ukraine war, we've loosened up all our rules about state subsidies. And and this has allowed EU governments and the EU itself to just kind of pour billions and billions of euros uh, into the economies, into big enterprises. And this is an exception that has been extended once and extended again, and is going to come up for review at the end of the year. And this becomes a really big sort of almost existential policy question for the EU. The baseline is that we don't allow state aid. Uh, It's a level playing field. You don't subsidize big companies. But that's now being questioned and reviewed. And I think that's a big one for the end of this commission and for the next commission, actually. 
And I mean, there are other issues as well. The midterm review of the MFF, the multi-annual financial framework that's coming up. And Gregorio, you've uh, been covering the migration file. I mean, this is a very contentious issue across the EU now, migration policy. We're seeing countries, we're seeing in Poland, for example, ahead of their election there, a kind of Brussels bashing, criticism of Brussels migration policy. As you covered, the EU was looking to get agreement at the council level on the migration pact in recent weeks. That didn't happen. Yeah, exactly, Suzanne. Well, there was a meeting right before the summer recess, a meeting of EU ambassadors who were supposed to, or at least they were hoping to find a deal on the last plank of the migration and asylum pact, but they weren't able to strike a deal. And so they will be facing this issue again in September. The Spanish presidency and the commission are trying to downplay this lack of agreement at the end of July. This was a crisis regulation. It is not seen as the most contentious topic in the EU's asylum package. So the general feeling is either that EU ambassadors will be able to find a deal in September or that the issue will be passed along to home affairs ministers who will be meeting in Brussels at the end of September. But as an EU official said, after the black smoke in Brussels at the end of July, we've lost the battle, but we hope to win the war. So I think that's the general feeling. Okay, but definitely a controversial issue on the agenda in the inboxes for September. Nick, Gregorio, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks for having us. Now, a quick note about the podcast before we continue. This is the last EU Confidential episode before the summer break. But when we return in September, EU Confidential will be moving from your regular Thursday evening to Friday mornings. So make sure you catch us in your podcast feeds every Friday morning from September. Now, after a short break, we'll be back to discuss how changing climate patterns are impacting Europeans' travel plans. Stay with us. And we're back. I'm delighted to be joined by two of our star reporters here, Zia Weisse, she's our reporter covering climate change, and Mary Eccles, Politico's aviation reporter. Hi. Hi. Great to have you with us here in studio. So Zia, let's start with you. It feels like every summer we have the same conversation about changing weather patterns, but it now seems that July was the world's hottest month on record. Yeah, and as a result, we've seen really extreme weather in Europe, but really all across the world. So parts of Europe obviously have seen really strong heat waves. And as a result, there's also been fires in especially the Mediterranean, whereas in more northern areas of Europe, like also even northern Italy, we've seen a really rainy July, but like extreme rain, like kind Mm. of dumping lots of rain. And while it's not as simple to make the link between extreme rainfall and climate change as it is with heat, it's generally that there's because heat brings so much energy to the atmosphere it kind of loads it up and there is just generally more extreme storms rain as we've seen across the board basically. Yeah I mean it's it's ironic isn't it I mean in Brussels for the last few weeks the weather has been like constantly raining and we're seeing these reports from the south of the continent about these record temperatures so they've been soaring above 40 degrees centigrade in parts of the Mediterranean we've seen many countries battling deadly wildfires In Italy and Sicily, the Palermo airport was closed for several hours at one point because of these wildfires. I mean, these really do seem to be extreme conditions. 
yeah, we classify him as extreme now, but the reality is that this is pretty much what our future looks like, or perhaps, you know, a mild version of our future looks like, depending on how much we emit and what kind of temperature change we end up with. Because as it stands, we've warmed the Earth by 1.2 degrees Celsius. And um, even in the most optimistic scenario, like we're we're going to head for 1.5. So there's a lot more warming in the pipeline that's in turn going to drive extreme weather. So we're going to see more of this. Like this is not, we can't even say that, you know, this is our future. It's just our present. Our future is actually going to look a lot more extreme. Do you think this is changing the debate? Uh, look, we're seeing people, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment, about how it's actually affecting people and holidaymakers. There have been more reports, I mean, you've been writing about this, about this direct link between behaviour and these climate change patterns we're seeing. I mean, do you think that this is going to be a game changer now for the discussion on climate policy? I think that's a really good question. And the answer is kind of, I'm not sure, because this is not really the first extreme summer we've had. If you think last year, we've seen these really dramatic fires in France. The year before, there were this deadly incidents of flooding in Belgium, Netherlands and Germany. So it's not really the first time, like we shouldn't be shocked into action by this summer anyway. But I think it kind of has reached a frequency where people notice it that, you know, oh, this didn't used to be like this. And ironically, the whole EU's climate agenda is a little bit under threat at the moment as we enter this final stint of the European Commission mandate. We saw that rebellion against the nature restoration law. We're seeing uh, some scepticism across Europe and certain countries about the climate agenda. So there is that irony here. Mary, turning to you, there's another aspect to this, and that's its impact on the tourism and travel sectors. And we have seen some politicians from these countries that have been affected, particularly by wildfires, trying to preach calm, even though we've seen these horrific scenes of people being escorted out of burning beaches and uh, being flown back to their home countries. I mean, what what has the messaging been like on this topic? Yeah, so as you said, they've really tried to play it down. You know, the Italian tourism minister has said, we're still open for business. Greece's tourism minister was on BBC Radio last week trying to say to Brits, you know, it's not as big a problem as it might seem. It's only affecting 10 to 20% of the island and essentially saying, you know, we can deal with this. So, you know, please continue to holiday here. I think also it's important to remember is that for the Greece example, tourism is worth, I think it's one fifth of the whole economy and tourism has been battered over the past few years. So this is the first post-COVID summer, really, the first summer where we've not had any restrictions at all. So for the industry, it's really important that this summer goes off without a hitch. And we did have a resignation, in fact, by one of the Greek ministers. Uh, yeah, we did. I mean, officially, it's it's nothing to do with what's been going on in Greece. But the Greek uh, civil protection minister resigned for officially personal reasons after being spotted uh, holidaying on a beach that was not on fire while other islands in Greece were on fire. But ministerial responses in general have been kind of interesting. In Italy, you had, on one hand, their civil protection minister, Italy's civil protection minister, said, you know, this is climate change. We've got to get ready. We've got to get to take action. And then you have the environment minister that went, yeah, I don't know if this is man-made. 
could just be natural cycles. Interesting, the politics, you know, that that is at play here. Mary, I was reading a piece you wrote uh, recently and it said that only 7% of European travellers who were surveyed earlier in the year said that extreme weather was their number one concern when it comes to holidays. That was a study carried out by the European Travel Commission. Do you think that still is going to stand or, you know, is this going to weigh on holiday makers' decision making? Yeah, so at the moment, tourism bosses are telling me that they want to use this summer as a kind of wait and see moment, because obviously the past few years have been a really strange one for the industry. We've not had a typical summer since 2019. So it's hard to kind of make any snap judgments based on you know the past few years and compare like for like. But one thing that we are seeing in studies, like the European uh, Travel Commission one that you mentioned, is that more and more people might be traveling out of season. Uh, so for example, they said this year that the number of people traveling to Southern Europe over the summer has dipped a little, whereas the number of people traveling to Southern Europe in you know, May or October is rising. But it's also kind of difficult as well to say if that's purely a climate issue, just because we're also going through a cost of living crisis. So we don't know if like the cost of rising ticket prices is also part of the mix too. Mm. I mean, Zia, what is interesting, though, is, you know, as Mary's explaining there, we don't know if this is going to signal a, a serious change in travel patterns by European citizens. But what we do know is that these extreme weather conditions are set to continue. Yeah, and get worse. And especially in the Mediterranean, which um, the UN describes as a climate change hotspot because it heats up faster than other parts of the globe. And it's, you know, it's not just Europe. We've seen brutal fires in Algeria and Tunisia, for example. Syria is doing really badly and not just obviously because there's a civil war there, but, you know, they're having horrific wildfires as well. So it's really the entire Mediterranean basin that's heating up. We've seen this in even the sea temperatures, which I think are about 30 degrees on average. I mean, that's bathtub temperature, right? And that's also then in turn heating up the atmosphere and making land temperatures warmer again. Mm. So it's we've really seen an exceptionally hot summer in the Mediterranean and yeah, worldwide. Yeah, very much food for thought there. I mean, is there a role for the EU in helping these countries as they deal with the climate emergency? There is. So there's two different aspects to it, right? There is limiting our emissions so that we don't reach dangerous levels of global warming that have you know very severe consequences because heat waves get more frequent and more intense by with every tenth of a degree of warming. So reducing emissions and therefore limiting the degree of warming that we reach is actually you know a very important preventative step for a start. When it comes to sort of preparing or responding to active wildfires, for example, it's a little bit more difficult because those are very much powers that only capitals have. Um, But the EU has sort of gotten more and more involved. They have, for example, set up a temporary firefighting fleet, which is, yeah, it's currently temporary, but they're going to make it permanent. They're going to buy planes. And there's a lot of legislation in the pipeline that sort of touches on some of these issues. But in general, um, what we call adaptation, so, you know, learning to live with climate change in a way, is very much still a national competence. Also because the impacts we see in Europe are so different on national level. Like Spain is going to experience something different than Sweden and so on. Mm, fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for joining us, Zia and Mari. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. And that's it for this week's EU Confidential. As mentioned, we'll be taking a summer break and we'll be back on September 1st. 
And a reminder that we're moving to a new time slot. EU Confidential will now be in your podcast feeds on Friday mornings from September. Our editor and producer for this week's episode was Christina Gonzalez, Politico's executive producer for audio, with production assistance from Ellen Bonin. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Have a great summer.